0: Welcome to the NCAST Monthly Regulatory Brief. I'm Aileen McDonough, your host and director of content marketing at NContracts. In this podcast, our compliance team provides an overview and analysis of the latest regulatory changes for financial institutions, along with info on trends to help you keep up with the rapidly evolving nature of compliance. Let's get started.
1: Hello, and welcome to another issue of the Regulatory Brief. Thank you for joining us. My name is Stephanie Lyon. I am the Vice President of Compliance, and joining me today to deliver our brief is Katie Farrell, Regulatory Compliance Expert, and Nicole Upshur, Regulatory Compliance Counsel. Just like every time, we're going to be covering the most important topics at the beginning that affect everyone in the industry. Then we're going to curate it a little bit more to talk about things that affect depository institutions like banks and credit unions and end with our ever so important mortgage companies. Kicking us off today is, of course, a topic that is very difficult to talk about, but it's something that is going to affect financial institutions in the United States. So we felt that it was very important to discuss the Russian and Ukraine issues going on. And Katie has that information. Katie, take it away.
2: Thank you, Stephanie, and thank you, everyone, for tuning in today. As we all know, we have experienced some great turmoil in recent days uh, due to the events involving Russian attacks on Ukraine. And U.S. financial institutions are bracing for the potential economic and cyber impacts as a result of the escalating conflict. We have been very busy here at In Contracts, updating our compliance management solution and Comply, with announcements straight from the White House, sanctions and general licenses issued by OFAC, resources from the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, and from our own industry's regulators, such as NCOA's recent updates to cybersecurity resources and tools, and the American Bankers Association's recent addition of a new webpage covering this incident. In addition to the sanctions, the United States is also responding to the attacks by prohibiting Russia from access to funds it keeps in U.S. dollars. Ukraine also suffered a series of Russian malicious cyber incidents with reports of potentially destructive malware on the private sector systems that could result in severe harm to critical functions. CISA has responded and issued the following statement in recent days that every organization in the United States is at risk from cyber threats that can disrupt essential services and potentially result in impacts to public safety. We are all very aware that cybersecurity and cyber attacks vulnerabilities pose a significant risk to our financial system, and the entire cybersecurity community has been placed on high alert to adopt a heightened state of awareness during these times and conduct what's being described as Proactive threat hunting. Financial institutions are alerted to be prepared, and leaders should heed to precautions by ensuring there are no gaps in IT security personnel and by being sure staff are aggressively monitoring activities for any abnormal behaviors at your institution. Create, update, or review your cyber incident response plan, and most importantly, make sure your personnel are adequately trained on how to respond to incidents. Be sure your network is defended, stay informed, be aware, and use your resources from the US Treasury, CISA, federal regulators, and all of the other resources that we're getting, it seems like hourly right now. All institutions, regardless of size, could be vulnerable to cyber attacks at any time, but even so more during these recent global events. The agencies have also observed that potential supply chain disruptions resulting from the global events may require management to reevaluate your business continuity or your disaster recovery plans. So stay very attuned to any potential impacts these events could have to your suppliers and to your vendor management program. We'll continue to track the impacts of these events to our industry but in the meantime, I wish you all nothing but peace, unity, and safety during these times.
1: Thank you so much, Katie. That is a great message to deliver, and it doesn't seem like we can do an endcast without talking about cybersecurity. So it's very timely and important to keep that in mind. We're going to go ahead and move on to something that has been in the news. We. Nicole actually authored a blog on appraisal bias, and now we have more on bias, but this time on valuations. Nicole, what's going on in that front?
0: Uh, Yeah, thank you, Stephanie. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in their February 23rd bulletin outlined options to prevent algorithmic bias in home valuations and to ensure that computer models used to help determine home valuations are accurate and fair. These options will now also be reviewed to determine their potential impact on small businesses. The CFPB's director said, and I quote, it is tempting to think that machines crunching numbers can take bias out of the equation, but they can't. So the CFPB's initiative is one of many steps they're taking to ensure that in-person, and algorithmic appraisals are fairer and more accurate. Both in person and algorithmic appraisals have been shown to be susceptible to bias and inaccuracies. Obtaining an accurate estimate of a home's worth is very important to homeowners and home buyers. Inaccurate valuations, both those that are too high or too low, can pose risk to borrowers. For example, overvaluing homes can put families' wealth at risk and create reselling challenges and lead to higher rates of foreclosures, which nobody wants. And low valuations can jeopardize home sales and prevent homeowners from refinancing, which makes it harder for them to build wealth. The Federal Housing Finance Agency, Fannie Mae, and Freddie Mac have all made findings of appraisal disparities when it comes to communities and borrowers of color. Automated valuation models can pose fair lending risks to home buyers and homeowners, just as appraisals conducted by human appraisers can also cause that. So the CFPB is concerned that without proper safeguards flawed versions of these AVM models could create digital redlining, and their intent is to strengthen oversight of these AVM models by ensuring estimates and data are accurate and not manipulated by avoiding conflicts of interest and by requiring random sample testings and reviews of appraisals that are the product of AVMs. So takeaway for us mortgage lenders, uh, clients, a big takeaway is most of you probably do use some form of AVM models, which you probably have received that are from third parties. So you want to do a Q&A on what you use. And also even an audit to make sure that the software you're using and that those providers of those software can ensure that the data is, that is going to be taken and reviewed in a way that's unbiased and doesn't present any fair lending violations. Thank you, Nicole.
1: Okay, Nicole. Oh, Just another great, great example, example of how our fair lending initiatives, how the agencies are all focused on that front. So we really need to be making strides in ensuring we understand the technology we're using. We're gonna move on to issues affecting depository institutions. And this could be called the payments Edition because we're going to start with NACHA's micro entry rule. And this is mostly going to affect our originators. So not ODFIs directly or RDFIs directly, which tend to be the banks and credit unions, but more the clients that are utilizing your originating services. And the way that this rule affects people in the micro entry space is micro entries are utilized to generally do account verification. So for example, if I want to make sure I have an auto draft to pay for a service on an annual or monthly basis. They might want to send me a small deposit of 25 cents or something similar and tell me to verify my account to ensure I have access to it. Then you do it and you're set to go. Well, because of the way and the, the amount of people utilizing micro entries and companies, Nacha thought it was a good idea to just streamline the formatting in the way that micro entries are being done. So there's a couple of compliance deadlines you have to keep in mind. The first one is September of this year. And what's happening in September is NACHA is going to require originators to start initiating micro-entries with specific keywords like account verify, the company's name, and to make sure that the transfer and the debit and the credit are done together so that the net effect on the customer that's requesting their verification is zero dollars. That means you're not taking anything out of their account. You're not putting anything into their account aside from those two debits and credits that should offset each other. Generally, a micro entry should now be under a dollar. That's something that wasn't before you know, I, I did a verification not that long ago. It was a dollar and twenty-five cents. Now it should probably be only twenty-five cents or at least under a dollar. So that is the first formatting that you need to keep in mind for September. And the second compliance deadline is going to be uh, March of next year, so March 2023. And the deadline for that will be all around the second reason why this rule came to be. There's a lot of fraud associated with account verifications utilizing micro entries. So, the March 2023 deadline is going to require originators to have their own fraud system in place to use risk management frameworks to really ensure they're paying attention to forwarding and returns during the microcredit entry time periods, and to be paying attention to those fraudsters out there. So those are the two compliance deadlines, which, again, are very perfectly aligned with the reason this rule came to be. So if you are an ODFI, it's a good time to remind those companies that are utilizing your ODFI services as originators that this rule is coming and that they need to be prepared. We're going to move on, like I said, to another electronic funds transfer purpose here, and that is something that the CFPB is covering. So I'm going to hand it over to you, Nicole, to talk about what the CFPB is doing with electronic funds transfers.
0: Okay, thank you, Stephanie. Yes, the CFPB released a compliance bulletin this month on the EFT Act's compulsory use prohibition and government benefits account. The bulletin reiterates that the Act and Regulation E apply to government benefits account, with exception of some state and local electronic benefit transfer programs. Some quick background, an EFT electronic funds transfer is any transfer of funds initiated through electronic means authorizing a financial institution to debit or credit a consumer's account. And a government benefit account is defined as an account established by a government agency for distributing government benefits to a consumer electronically. However, for purposes of this Act and Regulation E, a government benefit account does not include an account for distributing needs-tested benefits in a program established under state or local law or administered by state or local agency. So you may be wondering, what are the distinctions between state or local needs-tested benefits that are not considered a government benefit account under this EFT Act and those state and local accounts that are considered government benefit accounts? Well, the bulletin also provides examples of these extensions. The need tested government benefit programs that are not government benefit accounts are those subject um, to distribution of funds related to temporary assistance for needy families, more commonly referred to as TANF, special supplemental nutritional programs for women, infants, and children, more commonly referred to as WIC, and supplemental nutritional assistance program, more commonly referred to as SNAP, but more importantly, the state and local accounts established under programs that are considered government benefit accounts that you, you institutions need to be concerned of are those that distribute things like unemployment insurance, child support, certain prison and jail gate money benefits, and pension payment plans. Also, the bulletin summarizes the regulations' disclosure requirements for government benefit accounts, and most importantly, the bulletin specifically notes that Regulation E prohibits a person from requiring a consumer to establish an account in order to receive electronic fund transfers with a particular financial institution as a condition of employment or receipt of government benefits.
1: Great update, Nicole. And that does it for depository institutions. We're going to move on to banks specifically, and we're going to talk about the FDIC. The FDIC just recently released their priorities for 2022. This is a little bit different from supervisory priorities that we may have reported in the past from like the OCC or the NCOA. Um, Supervisory priorities are those in which the agencies will focus on for examination and supervision purposes. Priorities of the FDIC are more what kind of guidance and rules and activities can you expect from that agency? So that's the big difference here. The FDIC listed five primary things that they're going to focus on. Number one, CRA, Community Reinvestment Act. A couple of years ago, we had a failed attempt by the OCC, the Fed, and the FDIC to join together to modernize the CRA. Ultimately, we had the OCC push really hard and break away from the FDIC and the Fed and go their own way in creating a CRA rule that ultimately sucked and they had to backtrack not even a year later when the agency had departed from the OCC. Now, hopefully we'll do a little bit better as agencies and they'll work together to modernize in a way that actually helps the financial sector and the communities that they serve. We can anticipate some kind of proposed rule or at least a vision into what they're trying to do. I think as early as Q2 or this summer. That's what we're hoping for. The OCC has also said this is a priority for them. So we know it's coming pretty soon. The second priority for the FDIC is around climate risk or climate change. We have been hearing about climate risk for a while in terms of ESG, which is environmental social governance concepts. We have heard of uh, environmental or climate change when it comes to investments, lending, the vendors you choose to partner with the companies and the areas that you're serving, all of that matters. And especially when it comes to business continuity. So what the FDIC is saying is they're going to be putting a harder look into how they are providing guidance to their institutions regarding climate change. And that means you need to be thinking about that. This is no longer something that we can push down another year or two. This is something that your agencies are starting to take a serious look at now. So what can you do? You can make sure you're assessing climate change in your business continuity plans, your risk assessments, your deposits, lending, and so forth, because it is real and it is happening and it's something we need to be focused on. The third priority for the FDIC is all around bank mergers. I know this is probably something that the trade associations are going, no, let's not talk about bank mergers, but the FDIC under new leadership has said, 25 years to update bank merger guidelines is 25 years too long, so they're going to be issuing probably updated guidance, updated rules regarding bank mergers, especially as we're seeing a very heavily acquisition-forward industry happening at the moment. So that's something if you're involved in M&A activities, if you're hoping to get acquired or you're hoping to acquire financial institutions, you need to keep your eye on the guidance that's coming out to make sure there are no relevant changes in the activities you're undertaking. Then the fourth priority is cryptocurrency. Financial institutions have started to dabble in cryptocurrency services because their customers are really asking them to provide them. The FDIC is now aware that banks are trying to engage in crypto services, and they're just asking you to make sure that you're again looking at the risk of offering any new service, just like you would for a new product, or a new venture that you have outstanding, you need to consider safety soundness, control framework and risk management. Are you able to provide it? Do you have the right Bank Secrecy Act anti-money laundering controls in place? If the answer is no, then maybe that's not a place you need to start dabbling in until you have those things in place. FDIC will be providing you with more robust guidance around crypto and the crypto space. So that's something else to be looking out for. And finally, Basel three Capital Framework. This is generally not something that applies to a lot of financial institutions. This is something that mostly affects our banks that have international presences. Some of the largest banks in the country. There were changes to the capital framework earlier last year, so that the FDAC is just giving you heads up that they will be focusing to ensure financial institutions are applying the new framework changes and that you are aware, of course of these changes. So those are the priorities on the FDIC front. We've also had quite a few staffing changes at the FDIC, and this is normal. It happens with every administration. When we see the executive executive branch change, we also see a lot of the agencies go through a huge influx of change as well, which is exactly what's happening at the FDIC. Just what was it, a couple of months ago, we saw our chairwoman of the FDIC, the part after a very public quarrel with the CFPB. And now Katie's going to tell us what else is going on with staffing changes at the agency.
2: Yes, and it it kind of on the heels of their priorities. Um, The first chief innovation officer departed this month. Sultan Mehe departed only a year after joining the agency, The position was created in 2018 in an enthusiastic effort to kickstart the technological transformation of the financial system. But the former fintech co-founder and former advisor to the OCC, FBI, and U.S. Treasury on cybersecurity and artificial intelligence initiatives has left the agency, and he felt strongly urged to tell us all why. The former CIO claims that tech hesitancy or as some are deeming as technophobia halted his abilities to move the agency forward in the 21st century. He outlined his rationale for leaving the FDIC in Bloomberg News stating that solving some of the problems encountered is literally a matter of national security. He claims he faced barriers to to innovation not just at the FDIC But with all of those whom he collaborated, such as individuals at the CFPB, OCC, FinCEN, and, and all of the above, his departure statement claims the industry lacks expertise in the basic understanding of technology and concepts like fintechs and financial apps. And he wrote, and I must disclaim, and I quote, Digital decisions are being made by people with an analog understanding, and less than one-tenth of staff had a basic understanding of the technologies they regulate. So, some pretty strong accusations there. He, in his letter to the industry, focused on four reforms that he feels deserves immediate attention. For one, the federal hiring process is antiquated, in his opinion. And that when recruiting and hiring, the federal government needs to put applied digital knowledge ahead of tenure and what he feels are irrelevant qualifications. He also stated that continuing education and training is critical to the agency's success and that the federal government must tap into the private sector for artificial intelligence expertise and investments. Additionally, he stated that we must better collaborate with international allies, such as the UK and Singapore, who he feels have embraced technology and a modern regulatory strategy. Um, He is of the opinion that learning from our friends is essential to staying ahead of our enemies. And in light of what we spoke of earlier with the crisis in Ukraine, this letter has been described negatively as a and I quote, blast to the agency, but it does bring to light multiple aspects related to technological change. So I am personally looking forward to seeing how the agency responds to the claim that it suffers from technophobia.
1: Thank you, Katie. I'm telling you, the FDIC can't get away from having public drama this year. So we'll be on the lookout for more on that. But it's great information for financial institutions of any size or of any type to make sure that they're also considering technology and putting it at the forefront of their strategy plan. So that's great reporting. Thank you, Katie. We're going to move on to issues affecting credit unions. And our first point here is the NCOA has been issuing quite a few letters to credit unions over the past couple of months. So definitely take a look at those. The two we're going to focus on today are all about Humda reporting. The HMDA transmittal season is upon us. And if you're watching this NCAS, probably it has just come and gone because the deadline was March 1st. So if you're watching now thinking, oh, the deadline is coming, no, it came and went. So this is a good reminder to prepare for 2023. And the reason NCUA has been putting out letters to credit unions regarding Humda compliance, it's not because they're changing anything themselves, but it's because they have been seeing delinquencies in terms of which financial institutions should be doing the transmittal with the CFPB. They've noticed that a couple of credit unions had a few misunderstandings of when they were supposed to be filing this information, why, when they became part of HMDA compliance requirements. And the HMDA compliance flowchart to figure out if you are covered or not covered and if you have to transmit this data is like a riddle. I'm not even going to try to tell you verbally here because that is absolutely unhelpful. I do want to tell you to go somewhere that's going to be really helpful for you. And that's going to be the CFPB's Humda institutional coverage Flowchart that takes you step by step by step whether you should be filing and if yes, when. So just a couple of, of ideas on the flow chart. If you have a specific asset size, which changes every year, if you have an an office at an MSA or a metropolitan statistical area, if you do a primary or refis for one to four family dwellings, if you do those types of things, and then you also do home mortgages and, and, and open home mortgages like HELOCs, you need to be taking a look at Humda to ensure you are filing when required. The other thing to remind to remember about Humda compliance is if you're waiting till the beginning of the year, let's say you waited till January 1st, 2022 to start figuring out how you were going to transmit this data or started caring about HMDA compliance, you're too late. It's too late for you. You're going to have a very bad time come March 1st. What you want to remember is HMDA compliance is all year round. From training your loan officers to collect the appropriate data points, to categorizing them, to having an organized LAR or loan application register, to getting the filing done correctly. All of that takes a lot of time, attention to detail, training, systems, collaboration from everyone involved in your mortgage space. So this is something you need to have your eyes on the ball all year long, and you can't just pretend that it's a once every quarter or once during the March season that you need to be worried about. Those are what the letters to credit unions on HMDA compliance from NCUA, they had to say about that topic. So we're gonna move on to another news for the credit union space. And Katie, I think it's a great opportunity for you to tell us about what happened and what internal controls were lacking at an institution where a lot of things went wrong.
2: Yes, sure thing. And I actually have some horror stories of hum defiling Stephanie and being up until midnight the day before March first. So <laughs> don't don't wait. Um, so this story is about a CEO of a small town federal credit union. Founded by her own grandparents in the 1960s, she was found guilty of embezzlement this month, and unfortunately, the losses were so great, the credit union had to close as a result. The defendant opened six unauthorized credit cards in her name and repeatedly raised the limits, I I, I had to reread this to believe it, but to the tune of 138 times on the cards from 2017 to 2020. And since she also had access to the credit card database, she was also able to set her own interest rates and minimum monthly payments. In total, $2.1 million was charged to the credit cards, and the embezzlement was ultimately discovered last year during an audit. The defendant pled guilty to the charges and was sentenced to 51 months in prison with three years of supervised release once she serves her sentence. Unfortunately, none of the assets that were purchased with the embezzled funds are of significant worth now, meaning there's not much of a recoup of losses. Most were spent on travel, dining, shopping, and the biggest expense was to purchase a pig farm. So, while this may seem a bit far-fetched, this case does remind all of us, some very remind all of us of some very important lessons even if your institution is small and resources may be limited. Controls around segregation of duties are critical, especially in a small institution. And really establishing your your independent audits at appropriate frequencies. This may could have gotten caught years before it actually was. And then finally, responsible governance over senior leadership and the the accounts that are held by them must be monitored. Even if the CEO is the granddaughter of the founders, things like this can happen. And I I just, I'm still the pig farm. (laughs) It it made me chuckle a little bit, but don't let it happen to you.
1: Thank you, Katie. Absolutely. It's funny. I used to live near a pig farm when I lived in Texas, and so it's funny to me, too. Um, We're going to go ahead and shift gear to mortgage companies, and we're going to start out with lawsuits and and litigation on the Fannie Mae front, and Nicole has all the news on that. What's going on there?
0: Okay, um, Stephanie, this lawsuit is exciting, but not as exciting as Katie's case. That could be a Netflix series. But Fannie Mae has reached a 53 million settlement in a nearly six-year-old complaint filed by the National Fair Housing Alliance Coalition and other local fair housing organizations that allege Fannie Mae of unequal treatment of real estate-owned REO properties in Black and Latino communities. The gist of the settlement basis is that Fannie Mae apparently did a very poor job of maintaining their REO properties that were in Black and Latino communities compared to their maintenance of REO properties that were in majority white communities causing homeowners' property values to significantly decrease in these Black and Latino communities. The relief will fulfill central purpose of the Fair Housing Act, which is ensuring equitable treatment of neighborhoods regardless of their racial makeup. So what are the takeaways for our mortgage lenders and servicers from this huge Fannie Mae monetary settlement? One big takeaway, if Fannie Mae can be called on the carpet for discriminatory practices in maintaining their REO properties, then you can rest assured that these coalitions will also be looking at how private mortgage lenders and servicers are maintaining their own REO portfolios. So best practices would be to review your property preservation department practices reviewed their policies, their procedures, and ensured they are proactively sending maintenance third parties out to maintain the REO Park portfolios until those properties are resold.
2: Absolutely.
1: That's very serious allegations, Nicole. And we're going to go ahead and stay on litigation because it's not over, right? We still have to discuss debt collection as well. And Katie's going to take it away.
2: Yes, the Fourth Circuit has ruled that a mortgage servicer violated the Maryland Consumer Debt Collection Act. In this case, the plaintiffs filed a class action complaint against their mortgage servicer and challenged the $5 convenience fees for monthly payments made by phone or online. They alleged the servicer had violated the Maryland Consumer Debt Collection Act by engaging in conduct that violates the federal Fair Debt Collections Practices Act. So the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit ruled that the servicer did indeed violate the act because the mortgage agreements did not explicitly provide for such fees. The plaintiffs paid a $5 fee at least nine times in 2018 and 2019. So minimal fees in this case have had a really big impact. Uh, The case has gained attention of our industry's trade associations, and
0: Nicole has the scoop on their responses over this past month. Uh, Yes, Katie. Coming off of the hills of this soup, many of the agencies expressed how much they strongly object to the CFPB's hardline stance you mentioned on convenience fees. These agencies included NAFCU, the MBA, along with several other organizations. They filed amicus brief on February 22nd with the United States Court of Appeals arguing, as you stated, the CFPB's hardline interpretation of the phrase permitted by law in the FDCPA and in the Carrington Mortgage Services case results should not be so narrowly construed as to include those fees that are only expressly authorized by a mortgage instrument or a statute. So what does that mean for our mortgage servicers? Well, the incentive to expand servicing or for drinks for borrowers benefits could be stifled because of a case like this and a hard stance like this. We all know that convenience fees are a necessary evil in order to offer consumers a way to handle payments and other transactions more conveniently. However, the takeaways we should consider from this case are best acts uh, practices for mortgage servicers should be considering periodically, at a minimum, quarterly, or on a semi-annual basis, looking at your convenience fees that you currently charge and ensuring those fees are reasonable and necessary. If you find they are not reasonable or even if they're not necessary and you cannot justify applying them, then you should definitely consider decreasing the fees or removing them altogether if you don't want to find yourself looking at a lawsuit like the Carrington case that Katie mentioned.
1: Thank you, Nicole. Those are great points that you made, both Katie and Nicole. And on behalf of all our team, thank you so much for joining us. Don't forget and comply here to serve you as software. You can find guidance, news, more regulatory changes that are happening real time. So make sure you tune into to your comply for more information on what we covered today, as well as everything else that is happening, because there is definitely a lot. We're keeping busy this month of February, and we're expecting to keep just as busy next month. So we'll see you next time to deliver the Reg Brief. And thank you again.
0: That wraps up this month's NCAS Regulatory Brief, talking with our compliance experts about the latest regulatory changes you need to be aware of. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review. And if you're not subscribed yet, we invite you to do so on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening.